And we'll be in Acts chapter 16. If you've been with us for a little while, you know we're journeying through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the book of Acts, this early history, this God-inspired history of the early church. And we're marching along now as it is with the second missionary journey of Paul and those companions who've come along with him on that journey. And we'll be Picking up in verse 16 of Acts chapter 16 today. So if you've got a copy of God's Word, I encourage you to come along uh, and study with us as we look to God's Word. Just to kind of orient our thoughts on this idea of a change of fortune, though. I heard a story about a billionaire who had a huge fortune, and he also had a collection of live alligators. And so he kept those live alligators in a pool that was on his property. And one day he had a party with lots of individuals around and he thought, you know, I want to really kind of do a little test of the young men who were at this place. Had a young daughter who was of marrying age and so he invited all the young men to come around that pool that was there on his property with the alligators and he gave them a challenge. And he said, whichever one of you can swim to the other side of this pool can have your choice. You could either have a million dollars, or you could have my daughter's hand in marriage. She's at a ripe age. She's beautiful. You've got your choice, guys. million dollars or my daughter's hand in marriage. And no sooner than he had said that, there was a splash in the water. And everyone turned with awe as they watched this young man who was in the water and swimming and they were cheering they were rooting for him to get to the other side and fortune happened to be in his favor that day yes he made his way all the way to the other side he swam straight toward the billionaire in fact and when he got out of the water the billionaire said wow son i am impressed i really didn't think anyone would take that challenge but you did and you succeeded he said so i'm going to hold up my end of the deal like which one would you choose do you want my daughter's hand in marriage, or do you want a million dollars? And this young man said, I don't want either one of those. I just want the name of the person who pushed me into that pool. <laughs> now that's a man who had a few opportunities for his fortune to change all in one day. And I've chosen to title today's message, A Change of Fortune. That word fortune actually has a few shades of meaning, and they all show up in one form or another, in the passage that's before us here today. In fact, if you were to look up the word fortune in Merriam-Webster's dictionary, you would find one definition that says fortune is a very large sum of money. So it's a word that can refer to wealth or a store of material possessions even beyond like the dollar amount of your wealth. That's what we mean when we talk about a, a man who is worth a fortune. The word for fortune can also refer to a manner in which circumstances are uh, found such that it's beyond someone's control and particularly favorable sorts of circumstances. As Merriam-Webster defines it, a fortune could be a posterity attained partly through luck or success. That's what we mean when we say something like, that man was fortunate to be able to swim to the other side of the pool. And the final shade of meaning for this word fortune has to do with destiny or fate. That's the shade of the word that we use when we speak of fortune tellers. 
If, for example, this young man at the party had gone to the party because he had read in his horoscope that he was about to run into a large sum of money, then we would say that he had looked to his fortune as a way of determining what he was going to do with that day. And all three shades of that word fortune are found in today's passage. We'll encounter a few individuals who have the wealthy uh, fortune that's brought them by this woman who is actually a fortune teller herself. They are her master. She is their slave. And so they're fortunate because of the work that she does in telling fortunes. And she's able to predict the future. She's able to do that through an enablement of an evil spirit, as we'll see here in a moment. And Paul and Silas, these missionaries of God that we've been tracking with in Acts, they find their way into this woman's city. And that means it's also the city of her masters who have this great fortune in her. And as they're in this city, and as they encounter these individuals, and pretty much everyone who's associated with them, the fortune of all of those characters we're going to encounter in today's passage changes. Those circumstances that they're living in, those things which are out of their control, the fortune of their lives we find changing as this activity happens in the passage we're going to look at here today and so we're going to find a story of men with a fortune coming from a fortune teller and the changing fortunes of her and all those who are associated with her as the missionaries of the Lord Jesus Christ come into town all right And as we examine this section of God's Word, I want all of us to kind of take a step back and to ask ourselves an important question. What fortune am I forging toward? What fortune am I forging toward? What is it that you've set your sights on as the measure of the success of your own life? What are you gearing your life toward obtaining? What's on that bucket list of yours? What is it that would give you that sense of value that says, I have arrived. This is what I've been forging toward. For many of us, we've got short-term, we've got long-term plans, and they are aimed at obtaining financial fortune. Or they're aimed at obtaining the good fortune of popularity and fame. Or they're aimed at the good fortune of good health and a comfortable life. And those in and of themselves are not bad things for us to set our sights on. But they become a problem for us when our hope becomes tied up in those fortunate circumstances. In the fortune that we can obtain here below. And here we find some individuals who take a different sort of approach. We'll find individuals who... Uh, not only those who are kind of wrapped up in the pursuits of wealth, those who are wrapped up in the circumstances that are living, we're, we're also going to encounter some individuals in the missionaries named Paul and Silas who would appear to the rest of the world to have the most unfortunate sorts of circumstances. That's what they find themselves in, in the midst of the passage we're going to look at here today, and yet they are not dismayed. Like their hope is not wrapped up in those things. They've got a greater fortune that they've set their eyes upon. And so as they face about as bad a situation as you could encounter in doing the work of the Lord, 
we find them praying and singing and lifting praises to our God, even as the blood is dripping down their backs, even as the chains are locked around their ankles, even as they're in the dungeon in the middle of the night. They have stored up a fortune that is beyond any of these circumstances, and so they press on, and their fortune has been eternally changed such that those things will not rob them of joy in the life they now live. You know, we're in in the midst here of what is known as Paul's second missionary journey. Last week, we trekked with Paul and with Silas and with Timothy as they actually pick up Luke, who is God's author, God's uh, little author, as God is the divine author of Scripture. But this is the one that God inspired to record for us this history. Luke joins the narrative. We see the transition go from the third person of they did this, they did that, to the first person of we did this, we did that. As now Luke is part of the missionary journey. And as we trekked with them last week, we saw them moving from the cities of Galatia that were kind of on uh, a little bit closer to the area they had launched from in Antioch. They've traveled up by land to those cities of Galatia. And then they tried to trek forward into where they thought God's work might best be carried out. They're pressing on across what is now what we know as the continent of Asia, but they're trying to go into what is known as the Roman province of Asia, and the Spirit of Christ wouldn't permit them. They desire to go north into the area of Bithynia, but the Holy Spirit prohibits them from going. We talked last week about those closed doors that they've been encountering until they came all the way west onto really what is the westernmost tip of this, what we currently know as the continent of Asia. And they're in the city of Troas when God gives them a vision. Paul receives this vision in the middle of the night of a man from Macedonia who is pleading and saying, come and help us. And what do the missionaries do after door, after door, after door has been closed? They're pressing on, they're keeping hopeful and This vision comes, and now they cross the Aegean Sea, and they end up in what is modern-day Europe, in fact, in modern-day Greece, and they travel just inward from the coastline to a city known as Philippi, the same city that Paul would later write the book of Philippians to. That's the context of where these missionaries are now. In fact, the wind has been at their backs. I mean, they've seen success in their missionary journey already on the arrival there, they look for a place where they can share the gospel. They look for a synagogue. There is none. And so they go to a place outside of the city gates near the river where they think there will be a place of prayer. And that's where they encounter, as we saw last week, Lydia, this wealthy dealer in purple cloth. And Lydia ultimately Uh, God opens her heart. She receives the good news of the gospel, and she and her whole household are saved. And she offers her home as a place where these missionaries can dwell. She opens her home to be, in essence, the missionary hub in the city of Philippi. And that's where these missionaries, Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, have now come to as we arrive at verse 16. Here in our passage today, 
So as we join them today, they are heading back to that place of prayer where they first met Lydia. And so I would encourage you now, that if you're able to join me and stand as we read God's word and we consider, what fortune are you forging toward? Acts 16, starting in verse 16. It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl, having a spirit of divination, met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are servants, are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed and turning and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or observe, being Romans." The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Now when the day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen saying, release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us in public without a trial, men who are Romans, and have thrown us into prison, and now they are sending us away secretly? No, indeed. But let them come themselves and bring us out. The policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that they were Romans, and they came and appealed to them. And when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. They went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, and when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. 
Here ends the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Now, those of you who know me well know that that's way too much Bible for me to preach through in one Sunday. All right? So, in the interests of us actually having an opportunity to eat lunch today, we're going to break this passage in two. And I'm going to focus on the first part of this today as we look particularly at this slave girl with the spirit of divination and the events that surround her and how ultimately we see this change of fortune both for her as well as her masters and those missionaries who have gone and who have encountered her. That's going to be the focus of our study this week. Next week we'll pick up a little bit more with the Philippian jailer and we're going to particularly look more at How is it that we pursue? How is it that God works this change of fortune in our lives? Because that's so rich in the example of what we find with the Philippian jailer here. But today we're going to kind of stop around the time he throws Paul and Silas into prison and the reaction that we find them having to that. And so as I compel you to consider this question, what fortune are you forging toward? I want to make for you four observations out of this passage that I think will help us to examine that question. Here's the first of those. God can change a faulty fortune. God can change a faulty fortune. The woman we're introduced to here in verse 16, she's a slave girl with a spirit of divination. In fact, the literal Greek text says that this woman had a python spirit. In Greek mythology, the mythology that was prevalent in the city of Philippi where these missionaries have now landed, uh, the mythological god Apollos was said by some to have defeated or by others to have kind of partnered with a python which had enabled the prediction of the future to individuals who then received the spirit of the python. Interesting here to think through how it was the serpent in the Garden of Eden, by the way, who was the one who God, uh, ultimately Satan used to deceive God's people into believing a lie. And so there is this continued presence of a serpent, this python spirit who dwells within this woman, possesses her, and enables her to do something that no one else could do around her, at least. As she predicts the future. And this woman, she tells fortunes as a seer into the future. She's enabled to do so by this spirit of divination. Divination, by the way, was another cultic sort of practice. Whereby individuals who would come to worship at a temple would have the animals that they brought in their worship sacrificed. And the organs of those animals would be taken out. They would be divided up. They would be examined by those who were said to have these powers of being able to interpret from those organs. And particularly the liver of the animal. What the future of the individual who brought that animal might be these cultic practices, these really we might call them satanic activities were prevalent here in the Roman Empire. They were prevalent here in the city of Philippi. And this woman, she was likely a slave of the nearby temple of Apollos where divination would have been carried out on a regular basis as she has this spirit of divination. And she's brought her masters a great fortune through what she's doing. 
Greeks and Romans, by the way, they prized these practices of divination. They prized the practice of fortune-telling. No commander would set out on a military campaign without first consulting a fortune-teller. In the same way, no emperor would make an important decree without hearing a prediction of how that decree was going to turn out. Just think, like if you, if you knew someone who could truly tell you the future, like legitimately, you knew that they were legit in what they were saying, would you try to consult them on life's biggest decisions for you? Like, What if you could get an answer to questions like, what would happen if I went to school A instead of school B? Or what would happen if I married this person here instead of marrying that person? Or if I eat this sushi, am I going to face the consequences for that later on tonight? Or maybe will the Panthers ever win the Super Bowl? Questions like this. We could imagine individuals asking if they knew someone who could reveal for the future for them accurately as this woman, at least to some degree, seems to have an ability to do. Many of us would like to know these things. But there's a problem in that the spirit that empowered these predictions was an evil spirit he was a part of satan's army he was a demon and that's the danger ultimately in giving your attention to those who claim to be empowered to predict the future if they don't have the or if they do in fact have that power there's a likelihood that the power that they have to exercise that ability actually comes from one who would seek to steer you in a wrong direction And in fact, those who would guide us in predictions of the future in such a way may even jade your future by directing you and telling you where Satan wants you to go. As the empowered minions of his, they may guide you towards Satan's paths rather than towards the paths of the God who created you and the God who knows what's best for you. And still... Just back in 2017, the the finance-oriented website MarketWatch featured an article describing how interest in spirituality has been booming in recent years, while interest in religion plummets, especially among millennials. As the article says, more than half of young adults in the U.S. believe astrology is a science. The psychic services industry, which includes astrology, aura reading, mediumship, tarot card reading, and palmistry, among other metaphysical services, is now worth $2 billion annually, according to analysts from uh, the analyst firm IBIS World. And the article quotes Melissa Jane, who is the owner of a Brooklyn-based metaphysical boutique, as it's described, and she says that she's seen a major uptick in interest in the occult in the past five years, especially among those in their 20s. Her store offers such workshops as Witchcraft 101, Astrology 101, and Spirit Seance. And Jane says, whether it be spellcasting, tarot, astrology, meditation and trance, or herbalism, these traditions offer tangible ways for people to enact change in their lives. 
for a generation that grew up in a world of big industry, environmental destruction, large and oppressive governments, and toxic social structures, all of which seem too big to change, this can be incredibly attractive. People are wanting to change their fortunes. They want to change the outlook of their lives. They want to move from the bleak state that they're in to a more positive state, and they think, if I can just get a hedge on what that is, then I can overcome the destruction of the world that's around me. But their eyes are blinded to see that the source of that destruction is none other than the one who's empowering the arts that they now find themselves dabbling in. Friends, I warn you, don't put your trust in the one who opposes the God who made you. Don't put your trust in the one who opposes the God who knows what's best for you as you seek to change your fortune. No, that one will surely lead you astray. And in verse 17, we find this demon-possessed slave girl. She's doing a rather peculiar sort of thing. She follows after Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke as they go about in their ministry. And as she's following them, we read that she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. That's an interesting statement for a demon to make, is it not? What's going on here? Like It sounds like free advertising for Paul and Silas and the other missionaries as they go around. If we're really kind of looking at the essence of what she's saying here. But Paul didn't appreciate it, whatever it was. In fact, our text tells us in verse 18 that Paul was greatly annoyed as this woman day after day for a number of days continues to follow these missionaries around proclaiming these things about them. Why would he be annoyed? Well, it is true that these were missionaries of the Most High God. It is true that they had come to tell about the salvation that was uh, available in Him. But here we see that this woman was empowered by a fallen spirit. This woman was empowered by Satan. And from the very beginning, Satan has dealt in half-truths. From the days of Adam, he set himself up as one who could give advantageous information about the divine realm that no one else could present. As he said, has God really said? And he proclaimed to know the outcome in a better way than God had revealed for his people. And if Satan could work through his association with this lucrative fortune teller to convince the Philippians that, that ultimately uh, the, the God was on the side of this fortune teller, then we could only imagine the sorts of half-truths that this fortune teller would become the conduit of as Satan continued to work through her to tear down the gospel. And Paul wasn't about to allow this truth of God to be wrapped up and to be intermingled and to be confused with the half-truths of this Satan-empowered slave. He wasn't having it. 
He wasn't going to allow the devil to mix truth with error. And yet this poor slave girl, don't miss the fact that she's in the midst of quite the faulty fortune herself. She has no property of her own. She's a slave. In fact, she's a slave in two senses. She's a slave in the sense that she has masters who own her, masters who tell her what she needs to do, masters who are gaining a profit from her as she carries out her trade. But she's also in the slave in the sense that there is an evil spirit that dwells within her, that guides her, that is leading her to say the things that she's saying, to go the places that she's going. And the only reason that any other human sees value in this woman is because she's able to bring them financial profit. She can't change her circumstances. She's crying out for something more. And I don't know about you, but when I see this poor slave girl's plight, I'm reminded of my life before Christ. Can you see yourself in her story? Uh, let me just ask a few questions related to her faulty fortune. Is your sense of value bound up in the estimation of others? Your sense of value, like where you see your value, is it wrapped up in what other people think about you? The estimation of others. This girl had no value to her owners other than the financial value that filled their bank accounts. So when God works a miracle to set her free from the part of the bondage where she is bound by this evil spirit, they're not rejoicing that she's set free. No, they're upset that their fortune is fleeing away before their eyes. They were only concerned about this girl as much as she could make them money, as much as she could put money in their bank accounts. This girl was nothing more than a tool in their hands. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever get the feeling that if you weren't bringing in money for your employer or if you weren't keeping the clothes clean for your spouse or making the grades that would please your parents or whatever else you do for others, do you ever get the impression that if you weren't doing those things, then nobody would give a flip about your life? that's you, then I urge you to observe how this slave girl on this day found a change of fortune. She was transformed from a life where she was only valued by those who benefited from her to a newfound value in the God who prized her and the God who pursued her. God's word shows us that at our best, all of us were merely dead in our trespasses and sins when God came after us. God came pursuing us. It wasn't because of what we were doing for him. It wasn't because of how we were storing up things in his bank account. No, God came after us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. When we had nothing of value to offer, God saw us as his prized possession, saw us as those that he longed to redeem. He saw us as those that were worthy of the pursuit of sending his own son to die in our place that we might be restored to him. 
So don't let the voices of everyone else who might profit from you establish your value. Because your value isn't in what they say. Your value isn't in what you do for them. Your enduring value comes from the one who loves you and offers to redeem you and has sent his son to save you. You are the prize of heaven. Do you reckon yourself as such? God desires you. You're valuable to him. There's a God who loves you and has sent his son to redeem you. So don't let anyone else tell you that you're not valuable. Here's another question. Consider, are you, are you like the slave girl? How about this? Are you unable to change your own fortune? She's got a pretty faulty fortune here. But this girl can't change a bit of it. She's a slave. She has no possessions. She's got no power. She had a faulty fortune. She's weak. She's controlled by others. But in this passage, we find her transition, not because she gains some great level of strength on her own. No, she transitions from this faulty fortune. Because she found a greater strength that was beyond her. A strength that was greater than her employer. A strength that was greater than the forces of evil that had ensnared her. And while our text doesn't definitively say it, I can only imagine that she, like so many others who have been freed from Satan's bondage in God's word, this girl found a transition that was beyond her faulty fortune. I'll bet she transitioned from slave to child. I mean, she already had the gospel on her lips as she was proclaiming about these men of the Most High God who'd come to speak of salvation, and God delivers her in a miraculous sort of way. This spirit is driven out. And I will bet that this woman transitioned from being a slave to being a child. Whether that happened with her or not, that's the reality of the gospel. God offers to us the opportunity to become adopted sons and daughters through what he's done for us in Christ. He offers us the opportunity to make the transition from slave to child of the redeemed, child of the most high God. That's the transition that God has come to make available in the way of salvation that this woman spoke of. The way of salvation that God's word from cover to cover so clearly makes available for us. It's a transition to be redeemed. A transition to become a part of God's family. A transition to be adopted and loved and cared for for all of eternity. And welcomed into the household of our Heavenly Father through what Christ has done. And this girl has no inheritance. She has no rich heritage. But she'd encountered missionaries of the most high God. The only true God. And we're not told for certain. But I just wonder if this girl maybe caught a glimpse of the hope that God had in store for her in Christ. Like she's able to predict the future to some degree by the powering of this evil spirit. I wonder if she caught a glimpse of the hope that God had in store for her if she would trust in the message of these messengers. 
If she could somehow predict her own future being redeemed by and following the Most High God, then I'll say there's no wonder she's following these gospel messengers around. Surely she longed for the release of this message that they preached. And like so many of us with no spiritual heritage, here's this woman and no ability to change herself. As she presses onward, it takes the power of one who is greater to make the difference. You know, maybe you're here today and like you've heard the gospel, but you get the impression like this message can't be for me. Like you don't know my spiritual heritage. You don't know the things I've done. You, you don't, like, I didn't grow up in a Christian family. I didn't grow up, maybe you're thinking, with, with individuals who invested in me and who love Jesus. And like this, this is not my family's deal. Like this, you know, I've got a faulty fortune. And because of that faulty fortune, like this message, this really can't be for me, can it? Yes, this message is for you. It doesn't matter how faulty your fortune may be, how lacking you may be in the area of a spiritual heritage of those who've invested in you to this point of of how far you strayed from God in your walk to this point how it doesn't matter how great the chasm between you and almighty God is God has interceded to span that chasm God has made a way for you to be restored and you my friend can walk away from this faulty fortune you can have your fortune changed not by your own power because none of us has the power it's not by deeds of righteousness which we have done by which we are saved but purely by his grace does God offer to save us by grace through faith in Christ alone this is our hope and so don't get caught up on the lack of tools on your belt don't get all caught up on the lack of of influence on your resume and the acts which you've done no it's not by your ability it's by God's ability that the difference is made third question to consider are you like this woman with a faulty fortune are you crying out for something more As this woman followed these missionaries, she cried out. And what she cried out about offered so much more. Are you longing for something more? Are you crying out for it? Does your your life and all the pursuits that you've been pursuing and all the things that you have set your fortune upon that you've prized as the, the ultimate achievement in this life, is your life in pursuing those things showing time and time again that those do not fulfill, those do not sustain, those do not give you the lasting satisfaction that you need? Are you crying out for something more? Friends, something more has come. And this woman finds it. She finds it in the gospel. It's a gospel that transitions us from, from serving Satan to serving the Spirit. Satan has a hold on every one of us apart from Christ. He's the prince of the power of the air, as God's word reveals to us, who is Ruling over the sons of disobedience. But friends, hear me on this. If your fortune looks bleak, it can all change in a moment. God has entered time and history to show you how that faulty fortune can change in a moment. He's come to show you the way of salvation. And there's one who esteems you far more 
worthy than what you're truly worth in what you can produce. There's one who can change what you can't change. There's one who has power over every other power that competes for you. There's one who can provide you with all that you need. And there is power in his name. As a matter of fact, Paul appeals to that powerful name here in this passage. In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. That's what Paul says to the Spirit. Jesus has power over those forces that have given you a faulty fortune. And God can change a faulty fortune. That's the first observation to consider as you think about what fortune you're forging toward. Here's the second. A faulty or a financial fortune can fade with a fury. A financial fortune can fade with a fury. That's what the owners of the slave girl found. Look at verse 19. When her masters saw that their hope of what was gone. It's their hope of profit. They're focused on a financial fortune. They had dollar signs, as it were, in their eyes. If they couldn't be wealthy, then their hopes would be dashed. And yet all of that faded away in a fury. But friends, wealth is such a fickle thing. Who knows if the stock market might crash? Who knows when a wildfire or a flood might strike? Who knows when war might break out and some power may take over the land that you dwell in such that you suddenly become controlled by a force that is not one that allows you to keep what you own. And I hope you're not storing up treasures for yourself here below where thieves destroy and uh, thieves steal and moths destroy, as Jesus warned. These owners were, when their hopes were dashed because their fortune was destroyed, how did they react? Well, they acted, reacted with fury. They reacted violently. They're furious, and so they seize Paul and Silas. They drag them into the marketplace before the authorities. They hurl accusations against these missionaries, and they bring accusations that really aren't based upon the reason why they're upset. We're told why they're upset. Their fortune's been taken away. Well, we don't find them going before the magistrates and saying, these guys took away all my money. They took away my profit potential. No, they're hurling accusations that really aren't the reason why they're upset. They're upset because they've lost their chance to be rich, but when they bring Paul and Silas to the chief magistrates, they say, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which is not lawful for us to accept or observe being Romans. Now, there was some level of truth to that, by the way. These Romans only allowed officially approved religions. Now, Judaism was one of the officially approved, state-allowed sort of religions, but even that had fallen on hard times as at this point in history, Jews had been driven out of Rome and anti-Semitism was at a very high level. But beyond that, uh, Paul and Silas aren't coming and preaching and saying you need to become Jews. No, they come from a Jewish tradition. They come up out of Judaism, but they're proclaiming Christ as the Messiah. They're proclaiming something beyond what the Jews would trust in. And so they are 
proposing here what is essentially a new way of faith, a new religion that has not yet been approved by the Roman government. And so there really was a sense in which they were doing something that was prohibited, not allowed by those who lived in this Roman territory. These men didn't really care about that. What they really cared about was revenge. What they really cared about was making someone pay for taking away my chance at making a fortune. And the devil hadn't given up at this point. He had tried to be associated with the gospel earlier and uh, deplete the gospel messengers through his association of this fortune teller who proclaimed that these men were of the Most High God, proclaiming the way of salvation. But now he turns from the scheme of alliance to a scheme of antagonism as he ultimately begins to stir up opposition. And it's an opposition against Christ. It's an opposition against his servants. And it leads to violence, furious violence. And it really seems like by this point, even what we've seen in the history of the church in the book of Acts, and what we've read to this point, that that old devil would have learned his lesson. It seems like he would have learned that persecution was actually the fertilizer of God's work in Christ and not that which diminished it, but still he did not. And so Satan's kingdom being threatened results in the fury of those who have Paul and Barnabas arrested and brought to trial and really a mockery of a trial. They're not given a trial. They're thrown into prison. But the lesson that these masters of this slave girl learn, a lesson that I hope is driving home in your own life, is this. A financial fortune can fade with a fury. That's the second observation to consider as you think about what fortune you're forging toward. Here's the third. Fortunate circumstances can fade in a frenzy. And we see that as the fury of the slave girl's masters met its mark. They led the whole town into a frenzy, as it were. Everyone's on board, everyone's upset. Verse 22 says that the crowd rose up together against Paul and Silas, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And for the first time on this second missionary journey, blood is struck. And verse 23 reveals that when they had struck them, when they had struck Paul and Silas with many blows in this frenzy of activity, They threw these missionaries into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And the jailer hears the command. He joins in on the frenzy. He throws them into the inner prison, the dungeon, where their feet were then fastened in the stocks. And we've got to wonder, what was Paul and Silas's fortune at this point? Like they come into town on a very high note. They'd received a vision from God that clearly showed them where they needed to go next. They'd been directed by God on missionary activity. They're in the center of his will. They know that God is with them and the wind is at their backs. As they arrive, what happens? They find converts early in their ministry in the city. God is at work. God is opening hearts. To receive the truth that they are proclaiming. 
Like their fortune seems to be so good until this interaction with this slave girl. And all of a sudden, it seems like their fortunes have changed. Now they're in prison. Now they're stuck in stocks. Now they've lost their freedom. Their former fortunate circumstances have come to an end. And they'd faded in a frenzy of activity. The jailer who wants to guard the missionaries well, he throws them into the inner prison. This underground dungeon, by the way, would have featured the stylish accommodations of poor ventilation, little to no light, dampness, rats, the smell of uh, human excrement from the toilets, and putrefying bodies. Add to that the stocks where legs of prisoners were stretched wide so that they would be as uncomfortable as possible before they were locked down. Just imagine the discomfort that they'd experienced. In fact, they just came back from a beating of probably 40 lashes that left their backs tattered and in shreds and bleeding. They are in excruciating pain because their flesh has been flayed. These were horrible circumstances. But God had not failed His people. And this was a part of His plan to establish a thriving Christian church in the city of Philippi. Friends, I hope you're not basing your lasting hope on fortunate circumstances. I hope you're not saying the comfort that I can build up, the opportunity to live my life with ease is what I'm ultimately after. There is no life of ease for Paul and Silas at this point, but there is a life of joy as they even in the changing fortunes, even in the changing circumstances, find that they are still in the very hands of Almighty God. They're still at the center of His will. And that leads to this third observation, or really the final observation we have, the fourth observation to consider as you think about what fortune you're going for. Here it is. One fortune will surely never fade. What's the mental attitude of Paul and Silas? What's their mindset as they've been drugged into this prison, as they've been beaten, as they're locked away in these chains? Do we find them weeping? Do we find them saying, Why, God? Why me? No. If you were to poll the entire population of the city of Philippi, you would find no one more joyful than these two men in chains with the blood dripping down their backs. How do we know that? Verse 25 reveals that in the dead of the night they were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. 
In fact, they were singing so loudly in their singing that the other prisoners who were around them could hear them. They were listening to what they were singing. According to verse 25 here. They turned these unfortunate circumstances into a worship service. Into praise and prayer. How could they do that? Well, friends, they were forging on toward another fortune. They had set their eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of their faith. Who for the joy that was set before him had endured the cross, despising the shame. They were happy to take on a little shame. They were happy to dwell in a little prison if it meant that the one who redeemed them, the one who provided an eternal fortune for them, would be magnified and glorified through their lives in that dungeon. And they turned these unfortunate circumstances into a worship service, friend. What are the unfortunate circumstances of your life right now? What is it that's not going your way according to your five-year plan or your 20-year plan? Where is it that you've set your sights on something fortunate that's just not going your way right now? Are you having a worship service even when it's not going your way? you set your eyes upon the fortune that shall truly never fade away that's what Paul and Silas did here Jesus would tell us to do the same thing Matthew chapter 5 verses 11 and 12 Jesus is telling us how to react when these unfortunate circumstances come in our lives when persecution comes he says blessed are you When people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. What are we to do? Rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great, Jesus tells us. Where's the reward? Is the reward in the comfort? Is the reward in the prominent ministry? Is the reward in the success of a financial bank account? Is the reward in being noticed in growing famous? Great is your reward in heaven, Jesus says. In heaven. And so that's how we turn our unfortunate circumstances into a worship service. Into a time of prayer and praise. We keep our eyes fixed on the eternal fortune. We keep our eyes fixed on the eternal prize. And Paul and Silas's prize was with Almighty God, even with fresh wounds on their backs. And what does that result in? It results in prisoners who hear God's work in their lives as they sing so loudly that others in this prison can hear them. And when the chains are released, The prisoners are hanging around to hear more what is going on. No one is fleeing. The jailer comes in to take his own life and they're all still there. Because they've heard something that's greater than the fortune they thought they wanted. They heard something that was better than just a simple release from these chains. 
They heard something that was worth longing for, a treasure that could be laid up where these chains couldn't take it away. And I just wonder for you, my friend, if you're gathered here today, if other prisoners are listening to you right now, if others are hearing about the plight of your life, if others are hearing about the difficulties that you are facing, what song are you singing? What melody is echoing off of your lips? You know, sometimes those who are far from God aren't interested in our Christian message until they see how the hope we've laid up in Christ gives us stability in the midst of intense pressure. If they can see this, then they may be interested in knowing the Christ who grants to us a song of praise on our lips, knowing that these circumstances are temporary, but our prize will never fade away. Leadership Magazine tells of a balmy October afternoon in 1982 when Badger Stadium in Madison, Wisconsin was packed. More than 60,000 diehard University of Wisconsin supporters were watching their football team take on the Michigan State Spartans. And it soon became evident that the visiting Spartans were the better team. What seemed odd, however, was that as the score grew more lopsided and as the Spartans began to beat up more and more on the Badgers, there were bursts of applause. There were shouts of joy from the Wisconsin fans. How could they cheer when their team was losing? Well, it turns out that 70 miles away, the Milwaukee Brewers were beating the St. Louis Cardinals in Game 3 of the 1982 World Series. And many of the fans who were in the stands on that day were listening to portable radios that they had brought, and they were responding to something other than their immediate circumstances. Friends, that's what we have in Christ. The victory's already been won. There is a joy in heaven that is already made available because of what Christ has done. And if your treasure is there, if you've placed your hope in Christ, then it doesn't matter what these circumstances that you're going through right now look like. That prize isn't going away. And so I urge you to tune the radio of your life into heaven's grace-filled station that says the victory is yours. And let's be a people who have songs of praise and prayer that characterize our lives with joy, even in the most bleak circumstances. For our King, our Master, our Savior, our Redeemer has come saying, do not store up for yourselves treasures on the earth where moss And rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So friends, I urge you to cling to, behold, receive, if you've never received, the one fortune that will truly never fade. 
once more, I ask you the question, based upon God's word, what fortune are you forging toward? Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? God, if we're honest, I think we would all confess that we need a reset from time to time in this area. God, if we're honest, I think we would all confess that we make plans and we wrap up our emotions and we wrap up our lives in things that are temporary. Things that can fade away in a fury. Things that can be robbed from us in a matter of moments. And God, you deserve so much more. God, I pray you truly grant us a vision of the prize of heaven. I pray you grant us a vision of what is ours in Christ. Because of what you've done, not because of what we can do, not because of our heritage, not because of the faulty state that we find ourselves in, but because you love us, because you've pursued us. God, we love you, we praise you, we rejoice in you because of who you are and what you've granted to us apart from ourselves. So God, fix our eyes on the prize, I pray. And Lord, if there's anyone here today who needs a change of fortune, maybe it's a change in the prize that we are pursuing because we've gotten a little off track. Lord, if that's someone who's gathering here today, would you draw us back to yourself? Or maybe it's a fresh orientation, Lord, of someone who's never realized the prize of heaven. Who's never realized what it's like to be loved by the Creator God who with such a great love, sin has only begotten Son to die in our place and to reconcile us. God, if there's someone here who needs that gospel message, Lord, I pray that you would draw that wandering heart to you. That you'd reveal the prize of heaven through your power, through your spirit that those who would hear would ultimately trust in Christ, would give up their own pursuits and say, I'm going to trust only in Christ as my salvation, only in Christ as my hope, only in Christ as the one who can change my fortune forever. God, thank you that you make this a possibility for whosoever will. And God, I just pray that you'd work through your spirit and the knowledge of your word that we've attained here today to do the work that only you can do. So bless us as we praise you now 